certainly our work, our labor, even if it's not overtly connected to some spiritual outcome, is deeply spiritual, again, because of its participation in God's stewardship of the earth, caretaking for beauty, for wholeness, for righteousness, for the pattern and the ways of God to become manifest in the world around us. Hello everyone, welcome to Ideology, Mick here with Drew, and that's not fully truthful because we're actually in two totally different locations. Drew is recording from San Francisco, and I am here in Waco, and we thought we could let it slide last week, uh, but it turns out the difference in the sound quality was noticeable, so if you picked up on that last week, it sounded like uh, Drew was in a, an echoey chamber because he was actually recording from a closet, and uh, we're just making it work across three different time zones here grateful for technology to enable us to keep ideology going while Drew and his family are in San Francisco. We are continuing on here. I think this is week four now in season three. Uh, We've looked at a theology of God and God's action in the world. Last week, we looked at God acting in the world as evidenced in the various revivals and awakenings that have happened throughout church history. And this week, we're going to turn a corner and uh, kind of continue this theme for one more week, looking at if God is all-powerful, then why does he use people? If God is sovereign, if God has all agency and all power, what part do we play? And if you're a longtime listener of the show, you'll pick up on themes in this episode that we have touched on in the past, some of these questions around God's sovereignty and his action in and through people and where does that interplay? Where does where does that interface happen? Why does God choose to to work through people? Why does He include us in the unfolding of His plan? Uh, next week we're going to begin to turn a corner. I'm actually going to look at uh, I've been deep diving Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. I mentioned that last week, and I'm going to unfold some of those. Uh, themes that are hand in glove with the theme of this podcast, looking at the ideas that are shaping uh, how we think as believers today, the the waters that we're navigating as the body of Christ in this hour. So we'll turn that corner next week. But for now, Drew, why don't you take us into this idea of God being all-powerful, but his choice to effect his agency in the earth through people. Thanks, Mick. Um, yeah, as you bring that up, you know, it, it reminds me actually of a recent story, um, even being out here in the Bay Area. Uh, we we're doing this outreach at this apartment complex, and I'm speaking with this lady who is very God conscious, uh, you know, has a desire to know God, but would also be a self-professed, not a Christian. So in, in the way of walking with Jesus, she has chosen and is aware that she has chosen that that's not how she's living right now. And so we're having this conversation with her and it's a good conversation. And then my wife walks up and my wife is Bethany, for those who don't know her and, you know, introduces herself and this lady pauses and she goes, oh, that's an interesting name. And she had never heard of the name Bethany before. You know, she asked, like, what does it mean? And my wife is like, well, I, you know, just in the moment, she felt like she was supposed to explain it. So she shared her parents named her that name. And it comes from the Bible, the story of Mary and Martha. So Bethany shares, you know, that's why my parents gave me this name of choosing the better thing, being at the feet of Jesus. And as Bethany's sharing, this lady just freaks out all out of the blue. She's like, oh, my gosh, this is so weird. And, you know, we're like, what, what? And she keeps going like, you guys are going to think I'm so crazy. Like, no, we, we won't. We promise. Like, tell us. 
And she goes, last night I had this dream and in my dream, you came to me and I saw you and you shared about your name with me. And now it's happening. This is crazy. You know, she kind of goes on for a while about this. And then uh, Bethany shares with her. She's like, yeah, that's that's God. He's revealing himself to you. And, you know, the lady kind of the, the story concludes with exchanging phone numbers and this lady saying, like, man, I just I, I've prayed to God so many times, but I've never expected God to come back and meet with me. And, you know, she walked away because she had this encounter with God. So it's, a, you know, it's a, it's a great testimony, right? Encouraging, build your faith. And um, I, I was, we were at this outreach and as we showed up, it, you know, we weren't feeling particularly spiritual. It wasn't, yeah, there's a lot of great points to it of just what we did as we showed up and then God did the work. But if you, if you take this concept though, of like, if God is capable of doing that and giving a lady a dream and revealing himself to her, why were we part of the story in the first place? Why, why did we have to show up? Why did we have to minister for this story to kind of come together? Why didn't God just reveal himself to her through a dream and, you know, just not just give her a, a revelation that Bethany was going to come meet her the next day, but explain the gospel or, or do something else? Why use us? In, and, you know, I think my main takeaway from that whole experience was how little we actually did. We literally just showed up at a park. That's all we did. From my perspective, God had already done the rest. I think that kicks off an important conversation that really gets into some pretty deep theological questions that we'll we'll cover some of it today. I recognize that we are probably due for an ideology episode at some point where we dig a little deeper into the intersection of God's sovereignty and man's free will. No promises, but... That could be a good ideology episode in the future. So we'll hit a few of those themes today. But I, I do think it's worth taking a step back because hopefully if you track the last few weeks, like this very clear emphasis that God acts in the world and he moves. And that's in the background of God being all powerful and having authority. So you have this God who really has all the power that he needs. And then that God is active in the world. So why does that same God need people? I, I think it's a really important and in the end, powerful question for us to consider. That's really good, Drew. And, and I, I think, uh, I, I can't remember if I, when I did the episode on the the book that I wrote, The Father's Heart, I, I might've shared this story then, but in brief, you know, I think it's, it's even to tweak the language a little bit, Drew, it's not so much God needing humanity. And I, and I know we're on the same page here as God's choice to work in and through us. And uh, again, I might've shared the story of when my son was 18 months old and he came out to help me water the flowers one day and his involvement actually slowed me way down. It took me three times longer to water the flowers with him than without him. And as I was reflecting on that later, I realized, you know, that's a lot like us and God where on my best day, I'm massively slowing God down. His, his choice to involve me in his work is an inhibition to him, but just like I chose for my son to be involved because of the fellowship, I exchanged efficiency for fellowship. In the same way God, at least this is my take on the scriptures, my understanding on this kind of interplay between God's agency and our involvement in his plans. God involves us with, with him in his work primarily for fellowship. God's a worker, and to be where he is, we are involved in the same things he's involved with. That's not because he needs us. In fact, uh, my best understanding is that, you know, we, we are inhibiting the efficiency of his work, but he chooses to work in and through us. 
Yeah, Mick, I, lo- I love that story because I think it captures the heart of what we're discovering today, which is God does not use us because of a deficiency in God, but nonetheless, God does choose to predominantly work with and through us. And, and I believe this is a significant theme that we see throughout Scripture. So let, let's look today at a few uh, biblical examples of this, of how, how do we see God moving in and through humanity? You know, just to make sure I'm putting this disclaimer based on what we've shared the last few weeks, what I'm not suggesting is that God only moves th- through humanity. But what I am saying is that that is a primary way that God does move. Um, and, I, and I think God, maybe I could step out there a little bit. Um, God chooses to limit what he does at times based upon um, the people through whom he is moving. Why? Why does he do that? And I think your your story, your anecdote um, gets right to the heart of that issue of its fellowship ultimately. And I think this can be seen throughout the pages of scripture. So let me start with Genesis um, first couple chapters and looking at the vocation that God gives to humanity. And you see it first in chapter one. As we've discussed a few critical elements of this story, um, Genesis 1, humanity is made in God's image. And for a bit of a review, these first few chapters present creation, but using the image of a temple. Or you could flip it. You could say the later images of a temple are a representation of what creation was meant to be. But either way, you you have a picture of the, the created world, which is meant to be the temple of the living God. And at the end, God proclaims it good and he rests in his, in his temple. And humanity is at the center of this, where we, people, are the image of God. Now, negatively, if you think of an image of God today, kind of using human terms, um, what that refers to is that's an idol most of the time. An image of a God is, you know, somebody went out and made a statue and that statue is meant to represent a God. And in a kind of sad, tragic twist of irony, Typically, those images are things that God made in creation. So we've traded in this communion with God for these images of creation made in human hands. And so you have this warping of the whole created order of what God intended. But what mankind is meant to do or humanity is meant to do is be God's image in creation. And then you get this image going into Genesis chapter 2. It's that we're tending God's garden. We are co-laboring, we're working. It's almost like we're his vice regents on earth, or he is the one who has established this garden where he dwells. But then what we're doing is we're tending that garden and expanding it to cover the face of the earth. So from the very beginning in the creation story, humans are given a central role in God's purposes being expressed upon the earth and ultimately God's character being revealed upon the earth. That was not something that happened because of sin, but that was God's design from the very beginning. I think one episode in particular stands out, and it's this tiny little one of um, Adam naming all the animals. Now, I'm going to be a bit anachronistic, meaning I'm going to take a common thing today that we talk about a lot in philosophy, and I'm going to read it back into the biblical story. That's always dangerous. I don't recommend it, but I, I think in this case, it is interesting. You know, we talk a lot about how human language creates reality. So the act of me naming a tree in a way like I am taking something that exists, but then I am superimposing upon it my culture and giving it definition that didn't happen before. So there's there's a bit of creation that we as people do just in our language. And then, of course, you could expand that if you include our art 
our symbols, all this other stuff that we do. But I, I read this story about Adam and God is actually inviting him to name the thing that God's created. And so, yes, God did the creation. There would be no creation if it were not for God. But from, from the very beginning, humanity has a role in even giving definition to what these things actually are. However you want to read that, it's a powerful story of what I believe we can look back to is what God intended of us partnering with him in his created order. And this was always designed to be done in fellowship with him. We've talked about this plenty, but what sin did is sin obviously took that off course of us wanting to be our own gods. And we're removing ourselves from fellowship with him, trying to express our vocation, but apart from that life and that communion. And in the end, we only end up destroying the very thing that's been created. But if you read Genesis 3, after sin, there's a series of curses that are placed upon woman, upon man, and then upon the devil. And I, I think a close reading reveals a few things that I find to be are pretty significant. So first of all, you start with identity. The name Adam in Hebrew simply means man. And so he is a representative of all of us. And what ends up happening to him, the curse that's placed upon him for all of humanity, we're cut off from the life of God. But over Adam, now he still is going to work the ground. So he's still going to be a gardener, so to speak. But now, rather than it being in this beautiful garden, he's going to be in this wild wilderness and he's going to have to contend with thorns. So his vocation will happen, but it will happen through toil, through sweat, and ultimately through blood as he's trying to make the, the ground produce its fruit. Eve in Hebrew means life giver. And that specifically refers ultimately to childbirth, but I think you can expand that much more broadly. To Eve, this incredible honor of bringing and bearing forth new life into the world is still going to happen, but now it's going to happen and it's going to be painful um, and it's not going to be an easy process. What I find interesting though, in both cases, the vocation was not revoked. God did not talk, take away the call to be a gardener or the call to be a life giver, but now it's going to be warped. There's going to be pain that's associated with it because of sin, but the vocation remains intact. So let's keep marching through the biblical story. You, you see Genesis 1 through 11 culminates in the story of, of Babel in which you have a city of humanity that is built on the foundation of sin and rebellion against God. And you kind of see this negative cycle take place starting in Genesis 3, the ending in Genesis 11. You have these scattered nations who are, at least from the perspective of those passages, almost seem irredeemably united in rebellion against God and incapable of ever attaining back the vocation that God had given them. And that's where Genesis makes this radical shift. In chapter 12, the story shifts. And now, rather than focusing on all of humanity, it, it zeroes in on a person. And the person is Abram, later named Abraham. And so you have, out of the scattered rebellious nations, God reaches down and initiates with a person. And a few things stand out from the story. First, that God is the one who does the initiation. So there's nothing in the story that leads us to believe that Abraham was uniquely righteous, you know, more than anyone else on the earth. And it's because of the merit of his own righteousness that God chose him. I think instead, a better reading is that it's an act of grace. And if you read Genesis chapter 12, uh, you know, kind of as we're introduced to this character, you start to see he's a flawed person. Like he, he it's not that he's this superstar. And what it does is it, it sh shifts the focus onto the God who graciously does the initiation. 
And I think sometimes we can miss the fact that grace is not just a New Testament phenomenon, but it's all throughout the Old Testament because it's tied to the character of God. So what what is Abraham's claim to fame? It's not that he was uniquely righteous, but instead it's that he responded to God's grace with faith. And this is the point that Paul picks up later. That's what God credited to Abraham as righteousness was his faith. It was his yes to God and his obedience. And so what do you have? You have God's initiation, God's act, to use the language from past weeks, but you have that combined with Abraham's response of faith to follow how God was leading. And I think that's the critical point here. God is still committed to working his purposes on the earth through people. And now because of sin, those purposes will not be able to be achieved through anything that people bring to the equation independent of God. And so Abraham cannot bring something to God that God needs in order for God to work God's purposes. But nonetheless, God is still committed to what he started with. God's design for creation was that God would use people for his purposes, and God has never once abandoned that design for creation. And so Abraham's response then needs to be faith according to the gracious act of God. Juice, what I think I hear you saying is you have this intent of God in creation for mankind to partner with him in in some form of co-creation where the baton was handed, so to speak, to Adam and Eve in the garden to name the animals, to create culture and society, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to subdue it. And the image we get there of subduction and dominance is actually of a gardener, a caretaker, somebody who's cultivating God's earth to bring about beauty and fruitfulness and to create this kind of this harmony between a flourishing human society and the ecology in which it's situated. And then the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God is where that that fracturing, that shattering happens of mankind's purpose in co-creating with God and the introduction of both distance, separation from God, but then also the toil and the pain and the suffering that's attendant in work and child rearing and uh, childbearing and so on. Uh, and so you have this process then of reparation where God initiates with a family, uh, a person in Abram, and then a family that the people of Israel to begin the process of, of restoring that original intent and design. Is that a, is that a fair recap? Yeah, Mick, that's a, that's a great recap of what we're seeing here. And so, you know, key point to all of this is God is still working through people. The equation has changed because of our sin, but God is still doing what he set out to do, which was establish his purposes on the earth using people who respond to him in faith. So play this out, keep going. You know, you have the story of Abraham and we could kind of go through all the different patriarchs, but I've been studying Moses lately and you see the exact same dynamics. You see God's people, Israel, are trapped in slavery. And in addition to that being their reality, it's also a great representation of all of us, right? Um, You have God's people who are stuck. They're unable to help themselves. Once again, God initiates with a person. And I think it's significant in Moses' story that not only did God initiate with him, but Moses actually started to become aware of the problem. And you have this curious account of him going out and trying to solve it in his own strength. He goes and kills an Egyptian, you know, presumably kind of like this zealous freedom fighter uh, of some sort. And in the end, he ends up on the run, which is typically what happens when people try to confront these powerful empires. 
uh, you know, we, we love to celebrate these stories of freedom, but through most of history, those people end up getting executed or exiled. And that's what happened to Moses. And so you fast forward Moses's story and you get this older man who lives in the wilderness taking care of sheep. I mean, he's not the profile of this great guerrilla leader that's going to rescue his tribe. And once again, in the story, God initiates with him in a way that was unexpected in the story of the burning bush. Moses didn't know God's name. He didn't know how to refer to God. You know, he wasn't expecting this to happen. So God initiated. And even as you read the burning bush account, it's like God is providing every single detail that Moses could possibly need so that God can reveal himself. And Moses proves to be a very reluctant and ultimately in some places, even unwilling mouthpiece. He literally refuses to do the talking. And so God has to go get Aaron, his brother, to be the one who speaks. Yet, despite all of that, and God could very capably rescue Israel from slavery on his own, but despite all of that, God still chooses to work through Moses. And so God has not bypassed working with people to achieve his purposes. You fast forward after the deliverance of Israel. Once again, you have got, now God has led them to Mount Sinai. So the mountain on which he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush is where God led Israel back to after they've been released from slavery. And now rather than a burning bush, you have a burning mountain. And Moses once again goes and meets with God. So God is revealing himself to Israel and teaching Israel his ways. And there, there are a lot of these, you know, signs and wonders and smoke and fire. So it's not that God is purely acting through Moses's subconscious. However, despite all of these incredible dramatic acts of God, fundamentally, the way that he is revealing himself is revealing himself to Moses on behalf of the people. So once again, God is working through people to reveal himself. And I think there's some interesting parallels in both the Moses and the Abraham story. Neither of them were looking for God when God came and initiated. So both of these stories were very clearly acts of God's initiation. In both of these stories, you're left with this impression of God's grace towards his people. In all of the accounts that you read, you, you kind of get this picture. These are not reliable people. Ultimately, Moses became a very righteous man, but still, he was not fully reliable. And certainly Israel as a whole was not reliable. So God's grace is on display but then the noteworthy fact in, in the Moses story, just like in the Abraham story, is his response of faith and obedience back to God's initiation. So you kind of take all that I'm saying here and, and what you get is that God is the one initiating the action. Because of the depth of human sin, we are not capable of getting the program on track. We can't rescue Israel out of slavery and we certainly can't establish God's kingdom on the earth using human strength. God is the one who gets it all back on track using his power and its acts of his own initiation. However, God has chosen to do this consistently by working through people. And specifically in working through these people, what he's looking for are people who will respond to him in faith and in obedience to what he is initiating. All right. So, you know, all this stuff I'm saying, God working through people where I, I see this most perfectly in scripture is in the person of Jesus. And, you know, take, take what we're talking about today. God is the one who initiates, but God chooses to work through people. And you follow that all the way to its end. The problem is that all the people that God's working through still fundamentally are corrupted by sin. 
And so we're stuck in this cycle. We're stuck in this loop where you have a perfect God who has his purposes, but you have the people that he has chosen to work through are incapable because they have this corrupting problem at the core of their identity and who they are. And this, to me, all collides in pointing at the incarnation, that God was so committed in his purposes to work through people that God himself became a person. Blows me away. Blows me away how committed God has been for the vocation of what it means to be human, man and woman on the earth, that God is so committed to restoring that, that God would become one of us so that he could save us and ultimately so that he could get his creation back on track through this new creation that he would initiate. And you see that in the life of Jesus. And we've referred to this in past episodes, but um, you see him systematically going through all these points of failure, these points of temptation that have been where previous generations were sidetracked and incapable of expressing God's purposes. You see Jesus, by contrast, being faithful at every single one of these points. And if you go back to what I said about Adam and Eve, to me, it's really powerful. At the end of this story, what you see are the very things that were the curse of sin play a prominent role in the story of Jesus. And so what was it? Mary gave birth, literally gave birth to God. It's an incredible, incredible theological reality that Mary would give birth to God in human flesh. And so this vocation of being the life giver is so perfectly expressed in what she did in bearing forth Christ to the world. Now, once again, God was the one who conceived. It was the Holy Spirit overshadowing her. Mary could not have born God using purely human power. It was God's act. But just like you see with these other examples, God initiated and what was her response? May it be done unto your servant. Basically, she's saying like, I will follow in faith and I will obey how you lead. And so she has this opportunity to bear Christ into the world. And then you have Jesus who is the new Adam. And if you notice at his crucifixion, what is he wearing around his head? It's a crown of thorns. It's a symbol of the curse where Adam's vocation had been distorted. Now Jesus is bearing the curse on his very head, blood running down his head, but that becomes a sign to us that God's redemption is found. And so we now have this opportunity to live according to the new Adam and not the old Adam. In other words, that curse no longer is meant to mark us. We have this opportunity to partner in what God is doing in establishing his garden across the world. And we live in this interesting time where that's not fully yet realized. And so there's still some thorns we have to deal with, but the thorns don't win anymore. Jesus conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered hell so that we are capable of once again walking in our vocation. And ultimately what Jesus does after he is raised from the dead is he breathes back into humanity the breath of life, the breath that was breathed into us in Genesis 2 that was lost in our sin, that marked men and women ever since, is now restored to us as we have an opportunity to walk in communion, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is what enables us then to partner with God in what God is doing in the world. So to go back to where we started, does God need us? No, God does not need us, but God chose us. And the act of God choosing us is an incredible, beautiful thing 
And God is so committed to it that he would become like us. So it's no small thing for us to partner with God in prayer, to partner with God in sharing the gospel, to partner with God in extending the love of Christ to somebody. And that could just be a cup of cold water. That could be a listening ear. That could be sharing our testimony. But these are opportunities where what we are doing is what Adam was always intended to do. We are being God's image on the earth and revealing God to one another and ultimately walking in our created design. And that's only made possible by the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and by him sending the spirit into us. But now that we have it, that's not something we should ever take lightly. And I get concerned, you know, people sometimes they can focus on the acts of God so much that they lose sight of the human part of the equation. And then it's like we swing the other direction where we focus so much on the human side of the equation that we forget that it's only made possible by the acts of God. And I believe firmly we have to look at both of these. We have to recognize that if God does not act, we don't have much that we can do. But flip side, we also have to recognize that God has chosen to act and use us as a major part of what he's intending to do, not because of a deficiency within God, but because of a choice that now we have this opportunity to follow the example that's been given to us throughout the biblical witness of responding in faith and responding to obedience to follow the way that he is moving. Yeah, that's beautiful, Drew. I, I never really put together the the cr- the thorns in the garden with the crown of thorns, and I don't know how that escaped me. But that's a uh, I, I love a I love the nuggets in scripture when you dig deep and see how how consistent the biblical narrative narrative is across time. But then that imagery of Jesus fulfilling the or reversing the effects of the curse, and then uh, the Spirit coming at Pentecost and reanimating the church, the the people of God, to engage in the work of God, to take up that baton again that was given in the garden to co-create with God, kind of stewarding the garden of this earth. Beautiful imagery there. And And I'd suggest that this then gets played out throughout church history, all the way into the testimony I started with, you know, but, you know, there's a lot of other notable things we could look at of God moving through the disciples to establish his church. And so the church is very clearly the body of Christ and he is the head, but he uses human agents to be the ones who he partners with to build that body and express himself. You also see it very clearly in evangelism and sharing the faith or praying for the sick. You know, in in each one of these things, God is the one who saves. God is the one who heals. Um, God is the one who is even disciples people, but he's, he's moving through people to achieve this end. But maybe one last example that that I think we can also look back and see it is even how we know God is through scripture. And if you think of what that is, that are human authors that God inspired and led to leave us a reliable account of him. And I think that's crazy. You know, God didn't just give us these tablets where he's etched out everything and just totally bypassed human language and culture and personality even. But instead, he worked through human authors so that we can know God. And I think then, you know, we can basically look back every step along the way, God is moving through people because from the very beginning, that's what God said he was going to do on the earth. And so much so that he would even become one of us. All that to say that this concept of God partnering with us, or maybe better said, us participating in what God is doing is no small matter but actually represents a very significant theological truth. And I do know that it brings up questions then of how much free will do I have if I'm partnering with God? And, you know, what happens if I mess up what God is wanting to do? You know, there's a whole host of things like that, that, that we can drill into. But for our purposes today, more than anything, I'm just wanting to hammer the point 
that from the beginning, God chose to work through people. This is not a design flaw in creation, but this was God's intended plan all along. And this is central to what God is doing in his own person in Jesus Christ and pulling us back into his original call and vocation for humanity. Yeah. And I think in closing, Drew, I would add that this also makes all of life spiritual. There's a holism to the believer's participation in the work of God, that it's not just the overtly spiritual activities that count, that matter in the kingdom that God is interested in or is working through. Uh, you mentioned some some critical ones like uh, the, you know, the participation in the body of Christ and the work of evangelism and so on. Uh, but I would, I would add all of the different mundane components of our lives, paying bills and driving to and from commitments and our friendships and relationships and doing dishes and, and so on. And certainly our work, our labor, our contribution in the world, even if it's not overtly connected to some spiritual outcome, is deeply spiritual, again, because of its participation in God's stewardship of the earth, caretaking for beauty, for wholeness, for righteousness, for uh, the pattern and the ways of God to become manifest in the world around us so that the world has a flashing neon signpost of, of what God is like, his uh, attentiveness, his care for detail, his care for justice, and uh, and so on. And so maybe we just leave that with you, that um, that all of life is spiritual, and, and hopefully you can reflect on these ideas today uh, in, and inject further meaning and purpose in uh, what you're doing as you're driving to work or working out at the gym. Uh, it has eternal significance because we are participants in the story of God unfolding in the earth. As always, thanks for tuning in. We appreciate your ongoing listenership, and we'll catch you next week on Ideology. Ideology.